In the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul the Apostle tells the leaders of the Ephesian church that he is innocent of having their blood on his hands because during his time in Ephesus, he taught them what he calls the whole counsel of God's word. What does it mean to teach the whole counsel of God's word? And how can we be sure that we're doing it in our churches? Welcome to the CGN Mission and Methods Podcast, Season 3. My name is Nick Cady. I'm the pastor of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, and I will be your host this season. The goal and vision of this podcast is that this would be a forum for communication about Calvary Global Network. We want to share with you some of the stories about what God is doing. We want to talk about some of the initiatives that we're involved in spearheading. And we also want to answer some of the questions you might have about who we are as a network. In the episodes in this season, I'm joined by Kellen Criswell, the former executive director and now global strategist for CGN. And in many episodes, I'm also joined by Brian Broderson, founder and president of CGN and the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. One of the core values of CGN is biblical literacy. In this episode, I speak with Kellen Criswell to discuss what CGN is doing to promote biblical literacy and to encourage the teaching of the whole counsel of God's word. As part of this discussion, we talk about biblical theology and Christ-centered hermeneutics as we discuss the importance of teaching every part of the Bible in relation to the big story that all of the Bible together tells. Here's the episode. Welcome to the CGM Mission and Methods podcast. This is Nick Cady. I'm joined today by Kellen Criswell, and we're here today to talk about one of the core values of CGN, which ties into our history with Calvary Chapel, and that is biblical literacy. So tell me a little bit about why this is important for Calvary and why it's important for CGN. So biblical literacy, it's important for two reasons, I would say, in CGN. One is the history. It's the roots and the Christian movement sense that we have as a network that's really been birthed out of the Calvary Chapel movement. Calvary Chapel, since its very beginning in the 60s, through the influence of Pastor Chuck Smith, inherited a deep value of teaching the Bible and really teaching the whole Bible and even a particular approach to teaching the whole Bible. So Part of it is, as the leaders of CGN have been enculturated <laughs> into Calvary Chapel as their home movement, we've all got that value of understanding the Bible, teaching the Bible, knowing the Bible that is deep inside of us as humans, as sons of God, and certainly as leaders in churches. But I'd say even deeper than that is the real source of where that even came from for Pastor Chuck, where we all would really look to. And that's just this, the scripture's testimony of themselves. I'm thinking of places like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where Paul says that the scriptures are sufficient for all things. It's my shorthand version of it, basically to make us equipped for every good work. And so the scripture's testimony of themselves is one of utmost foundational importance. And and so, yeah, for, for those two reasons, among others, I'd say those are the two core reasons. It's what the Bible says about itself. It's the history that we've grown up with as leaders. Biblical literacy is a thing. <laughs> so what are some of the ways that Calvary has approached biblical literacy and encouraging biblical literacy historically? What are some of the ways that we're doing it today? Yeah, so let me, I think in answer to that, the first thing I want to do is I'm just going to actually read our statement on biblical literacy from the, the CGN website. This is how we've articulated this value of biblical literacy. We say CGN values the essentiality of the Bible to Christian faith and spirituality. So we see the Bible as essential in defining, understanding, and living out this, this idea of the Christian faith and Christian spirituality, like what what we believe about spiritual things, how we practice what it means to live a daily life with Christ and in the community of Christ. We say we believe healthy Christian lives and congregations require biblical teaching and education through culturally appropriate methods that God's people might understand his will, submit to his authority, and find vitality in his truth. And I think those ideas are core to what we mean by biblical literacy, that the scripture in under the Spirit's operation, the Spirit of God's operation in our lives are the primary way. They're not the only way. And even scripture would testify to that, like the use of creation and revealing things about God, for instance. 
but they're the primary way that we understand God's will, submit to his authority, and find life in his truth, and really that we understand the core purpose, history, and ends of the entire universe and human history itself. So I think the walk of biblical literacy is about those things, of pressing into those possibilities in Scripture as a person, but then as the community of Christ as well. So ways we've done that in the past in Calvary, so we've had a, what I would call as a pretty traditional local church model, right? Which it tends to be, there's, a, there's an organization that's got a brand and some kind of property somewhere, and, and they have programs and, and times of gathering where they get together and do things. And in Calvary Chapel, I think what has been pointed to most historically is uh, this idea that the book of Acts is God's blueprint for the healthy church. And I think we still preserve, in essence, that that is a value that stems from our biblical literacy value as the leadership of CGN. And specifically, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 have always been kind of looked at as this this little snapshot in that Jerusalem church that was given to us in part to see the kinds of emphases they had as a local community and some of the kinds of things that God does when those are the emphases of a local community. And one of the first things that is stated there is they had this devotion to apostolic teaching or to the apostles' teaching, the things that the apostles were teaching them about Christ and reality. And so I think Calvary Chapel has looked back at that and said, if there's four things in that verse, however you want to exegete it, there's at least this one, this idea of teaching the Bible. And that as we engage in coming together and teaching, that God things are going to happen in our lives and in our community. So then the, the particulars, there became more particulars of an approach at it. Like it's, it's one thing to say preaching, but like what kind of preaching and what happened over time, mostly I think through Chuck Smith's own journey of experimenting with different kinds of preaching and having different kinds of effects, what became normative in Calvary Chapel was number one, expository preaching. And you can define that in a second if you want. And then, but it was teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the entire Bible as the foundation of corporate life for a local church that we would gather together at least on Sundays in typical form at least once a week, most Calvaries have gathered multiple times during the week to teach through with this goal of journeying through the scriptures with the guidance of qualified biblical teachers over the course of a long haul. And this idea, it's almost a little bit Keswick, I think, but that as we did that together, this God is it's this idea that as the word, as we get into the word, the word's getting into us and it sort of does this transformative thing by the spirit of God's power. And I think just one guy, but I think that that's pretty close to what you might think of as Calvary's most focused approach to doing biblical literacy for the last 50, 60 years of our existence. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have been other <laughs> endeavors, right? There have been Bible colleges, and we still have those in, sure, in yeah. Calvary, and we have encouraged it in many ways. But I agree, that's the meat and potatoes, the bread and butter. Somebody who didn't go to Bible college, if they, well, we use this phrase, right? If you sat under verse-by-verse verse teaching through the Bible, then there was a good chance you're going to become biblically literate. Yeah. And, um, well, and ironically yeah. too, I think I agree with you that the, the, the rise or the establishment and rise of Bible college as an idea in Calvary Chapel, it also is an expression of that commitment to biblical literacy. But I think if you, if we were to look at all those schools, we, one, one of the things we would interestingly find is core to the, every program was the requirement of listening to Pastor Chuck Smith teach verse by verse through the whole Bible. So again, like at the center of it would be that work that at least Chuck as one pastor did that was so, still looked to as like the bedrock of what you were getting even in a Bible college setting. It was like this, right. this cornerstone to it almost. The importance of biblical exposition, usually confined to proclaiming the gospel to sinners. But once a person has accepted the Lord, I think that they really need to be taught. And so God sort of led me into a 
teaching kind of a ministry. I can remember when I first started in the ministry, I was pastoring a little church in Tucson, and my dear wife Kay sought to help me. She said, honey, you're just not dynamic enough. You just stand behind the pulpit. Now, watch Billy Graham. He doesn't just stand behind the pulpit. He moves around, and of course, he would take the big stand and all, and he would go over to the side of the platform, and you know, he'd lift his hand, and, and very dynamic. And she said, honey, you've got to be more dynamic. I'll never forget the Sunday I decided to be dynamic. <laughs> I, I remember it so clearly. I was getting to the major point of my message. I grabbed the microphone and I went over to the side of the platform. I lifted my hand, a la Billy Graham, was going to drive this point home, and my mind went totally blank. Now, I, I experienced that more often today than I did then. Uh, they call it senior moments, I think. I remember Years ago, when I was in the early ministry, early years of my ministry, my preaching was all topical preaching. I had topics for about two years. So after being in a church for two years, I would ask for a transfer. And I would go to another church and preach my two years of topics. And that went fine until I arrived in Huntington Beach. I loved Huntington Beach but my two years was running out I don't want to move you know I'd like to say that I got a revelation and the Lord spoke to my heart and said Chuck start teaching you know it wasn't that way it was just I, I've got to do something to stay here so I was reading the book the Apostle John by Griffith Thomas I think it was chapter 7 where he gave outline studies of First John. I began to read these outline studies. They were good. As I began to study them, I realized I could make a sermon out of each of these 42 outlines that he has. I could stay in Huntington Beach for another year. <laughs> All I have to do is change from topical preaching to just expounding, teaching the Word of God. So I announced to the people, next Sunday we're going to do something different. We're going to start a study of 1 John. And then we started through 1 John. It took a whole year. The amazing thing was that there were more people came to Christ that year than in any year of my ministry. More people were baptized and the church doubled in the year, just teaching through 1 John. Well, I was excited. I still didn't want to leave Huntington Beach. And I had developed a new style of ministry, not topical, but just expositional studying of the Word. So had a professor in Bible college that said the book of Romans will revolutionize any church. I thought, well, I'd like to see a revolution. I'll teach the book of Romans. I got all of the commentaries I could find on Romans and started to develop outline studies through the book of Romans. Took two years going through the book of Romans and it revolutionized me. I discovered the grace of God. I had grown up in sort of a legalistic kind of a background in the church that I was in and I discovered the grace of God and it was just a glorious discovery, personal discovery. My life was transformed and really understanding God's grace. I used to make a practice of giving Halley's Bible Pocket Handbook out to everyone who accepted the Lord, that they could read it along with their Bible because it was so chock full of just good information in a condensed form. I had gotten so much out of it, I thought, what does he consider the most important page? And I turned to it, and he said, every church should have a system of taking the whole congregation through the whole Bible. And ideally, the Sunday morning message would come out of the passages that the people read the previous week. 
But I thought, well, why not just go straight through the Bible? Start with Genesis and go straight through. And I had developed a pattern of expositional teaching, just simply teaching the Word of God simply. And I've followed that pattern through the years in the ministry, over 60 years now. This mode of teaching and this mode of encouraging people to read the Bible and to study the Bible, to hear the Bible taught, and then to teach it, there's an underlying belief within that, which is belief in what we call the perspicuity of Scripture, or to put it more clearly, it's to say the clarity of Scripture, right? <laughs> perspicuity just is Funny the how you have of... to dig for a different word to make the word that means clear, clear. <laughs> I know, right? It's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I can't even say perspicuity. Or <laughs> yeah, but perspicuity is just the opposite of obscurity, right? So something that's obscure, you can yeah. see it, but it's not clear. Whereas something that's perspicuous, you can see it for what it is. And so that's the whole idea with the idea of the perspicuity of scripture. Yeah. That we believe that somebody with healthy human capabilities, also with the help of the Spirit of God illuminating, mm -hmm. is able to understand, perhaps not the meaning of every verse without any question, but they are able to understand the, the thrust and the key message of the Bible. Yeah, And so I think that that's also important for us to talk about is what is that? And so this phrase has been used a lot in Calvary, and I think it's a good one. It's from the Bible. It's this idea of teaching the whole counsel of God's word. Yeah. And so that's something that we've sought to do as Calvary. And one of the ways that we do that is through teaching through the whole Bible. But I would actually say, let's take a look at that passage where that phrase comes from and talk about it a little bit, because I bet that it's possible to actually teach verse by verse through the whole Bible and not effectively teach the whole counsel of God's word. In the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul the apostle, he's meeting with the Ephesian elders, saying goodbye mm -hmm. to them as he heads off to Jerusalem. And Paul declares to them, this is Acts 20, starting in verse 19. He mm -hmm. says, you know the way I lived with you the whole time since I set foot in Asia. And then he says in verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's his core message right there, right? And then he says, verse 24, one of the most moving verses in the Bible, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Mm -hmm. So I find that phrase really interesting. And we could uh, let's talk about that for a second. It means that there is something yes. which if you didn't do it, you would be guilty of yeah. blood. You would have blood on your hands. Right, right. Paul says, because I did this, I don't have your blood on my hands. And yeah. that is declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, yeah. I, I find that interesting because I think that sometimes when we talk about Talk, teaching the whole counsel of God, I think what immediately might come to mind for some people is like teaching verse by verse through the entire Bible and making commentary on it as we go. But I think you consider the fact that Paul was only in Ephesus for three years. And on average, I think it takes people a lot longer than mm -hmm. that to do what we think about when we say, okay, I taught through the Bible. Yeah, there's a little summarizing going on in here somewhere. <laughs> Probably, right? <laughs> And so especially if you how, think it's not like in Ephesus, it's like, hey, all of you, we've got 30 Bibles over on the shelf. You just pull yeah. those off and flip to the book of uh, we're talking scrolls, we're talking parchments, we're talking no access to general scripture possession. But yeah, it'd be a little difficult to do it in that manner, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so how would Paul have been able to teach the whole council of God in three years under those circumstances? Yeah. And, I think, and I, so I think part of what you were getting at is we're just asking, is that what Paul meant when he said that phrase? Right. And I think that what we would say, what I would say, I'll just speak for myself is I've been a part of Calvary Chapel now for, I guess I would say 16, 17 years. 
And um, this phrase, what, I, what I've seen in it, what I, what I thought this meant because of my teaching and training in Calvary Chapel is that it really didn't mean the whole Bible, that we have, a, we have a charge to teach the whole counsel of God to the congregation we serve. And, and therefore, what we need to do is teach verse by verse through the entire Bible, because that's the only way that we can be sure that we've actually taught the whole counsel of God. So we, I think we read whole counsel and we've thought, well, that must be in the entire Bible. It's everything that God has to say. And I think that I would agree with where you are going. When I look at what Paul is actually saying is as much as teaching through the whole Bible is amazing and let's keep that, that's all great. I just don't think that that's what Paul meant, even in the way he speaks in, these te- in this text. Because as you said, again, whatever he means, he means that like if you, it, it is a difference of life or death. It is a difference of you being responsible for the life or death of somebody or not being responsible for that. Mm. And just when you put that kind of weight on it alone, I think only the gospel message qualifies to be that grave in its potential consequences regarding whether I believe it and whether I speak it faithfully to somebody. If I don't preach the gospel to you, that's on me. And it's a life or death thing. There's a lot of things in scripture that you could talk about what's going on historically. You could talk about the context, some of the nuts and bolts of the passage. And, uh, and I don't think it's a life or death situation if you proclaimed what you see there to somebody, right? But the gospel message itself, that is life or death. And, mm-hmm. and then again, as you brought into the other pieces of it, he literally tells us what he means when he says, I proclaimed repentance toward God and faith toward Christ. And then later, as you noted in verse 24, I'm testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. So what I see in there, again, I agree with you. I think he uses the whole counsel of God as this idea of this, this summative core message that really, this is the, the single message that all the messages of the Bible come together to reinforce at the center of our faith, at the center of reality that I have to do. It's at the center of what is happening between man and God, what man must come to realize above all things and embrace. And it's this, I, this gospel message centered to his mission, centered to the scriptures, centered to the life of Jesus, central to the Christian message. And I think it's what Paul is saying. There's the gospel of the grace of God. And last thing, I, I know I'm going on here, but that I see a mirror of what he's of this kind of language in a, in another very explicit passage in Galatians one. Paul he just goes in on on the gospel, and he 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 tells us that if anybody, even himself, an angel messes up this core gospel message that's core to everything else, then let them be accursed. Let them go to hell. So he puts that same kind of weight over there and he tells us very explicitly what he's getting into. This is about that central thing of the gospel. So that's what I, that's what I'm seeing there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And I I would just say, I'm not trying to, by any means, like dismantle or go against any method of teaching the Bible. In fact, that's how we, we teach the Bible at our church is verse by verse through books of the Bible most of the time. But I would say that I think that this is an important way of how we do it, right? Because I think that just the fact that you read a verse and make some comments on it doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing it well. And it doesn't mean that you are preaching in a way that really honors the true meaning of the text. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes, I would. Yeah. And I think this is getting into just the, the, the question of what the Bible is really about. And I think, and this is a biblical theology conversation, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. my biblical theology to me, my, my perspective on it is it's, it basically comes from the idea that all 66 books are really about one story, that all the stories of the Bible in one manner or, uh, or another, their, their really central purpose is one singular story. And it's, it's this mission of God. It's the missio day. It's the thing that God is doing all the time that he's been doing since the beginning of the foundation of the world that he's going to continue to do until the return of Christ and the kingdom and all of these types of things. And it's a, it's a central message of, of a Messiah who, who comes and he lives and he dies and he rises and he ascends and he returns and he redeems lost creation back to God. And, mm. and so, yeah, I think that that's, that's what, I guess, to your point, when you're teaching the Bible, let me put it this way. Like if I'm teaching a class on a book of the Bible, like I taught the so-called pastoral epistles. That's another conversation <laughs> about the title of those, but the so-called pastoral epistles a while ago. And because I want students reading the Bible, I wrote four questions that they were required to answer for each 
text that I assigned them. And, and it was, what do I see about God? What do I see about myself? And what do I see about the gospel? It's common to ask, what do I see about God? What do I see about myself here? But to ask, what do you see about the gospel? That I think starts to drive us toward this thing that you're talking about, where you could teach the basic mechanics of a text, maybe even in its context, but not expanding it out to the context of the Bible. We can forget that every single thing in scripture is driving at Jesus and those core acts of his life, of his life, death, resurrection, and so on. They are all driving there. And so the question is, if you don't show the connection with the gospel and whatever text you happen to be in or whatever text you're reading, are you preaching the, the true heart of what it wants us to be driving at in that text? Is that a different way of asking it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think just dialing back, we would say this. <laughs> On the one hand, biblical literacy is a core value of CGN yeah. because we believe that scripture is clear or perspicuous and we want yeah. people to be literate in it. But in order to do that, we also need to understand the core message of the Bible yeah. and, and the thing which all the stories together tell. Yeah. Um, we have a guy here at our church in Longmont, and he was a professor for many years. He's now over 80, but he teaches a Bible study at our church. And his specialty when he was teaching at, at a, a university here in Colorado was biblical interpretation. And I love the way that he puts it. He puts it just so simply and clearly. He says, the core, the foundation of good biblical interpretation is understanding that the Bible is a book about Jesus. And that's something I learned in Calvary Chapel. I remember hearing teachings through the book of Leviticus. And the thing that they always pointed out to us is that going and looking at Colossians chapter 2, which reminds us that everything that came before was a shadow, but the substance is found in Christ. And then that yeah. becomes what we call a hermeneutic or a lens through which we read the Old Testament. So when we read about certain sacrifices in the Old Testament, we read them through the lens of knowing that in some way or another, they are pointing us to or preparing us for the substance which is yet to come, which is found in Christ. And I think that's such a core foundational thing about what we, what, how we view the Bible and how we view biblical literacy and teaching the Bible as CGN and Calvary Chapel. Right. Yeah. So yeah, biblical literacy is a value. It's from our history. It's an implication of believing in the clarity of scripture. It's in accord with the Bible's teaching about itself, that it is, you know, sufficient for all of life and all that. So then we start to ask, what does biblical literacy means? I think part of what we're saying is to be literate in the Bible is to at least understand Jesus as the central message of the entire Bible. One thing I think we need to say at this point is where we get that idea. That's important, right? So it's important in part because I think there's a lot of talk about Christ-centered preaching, gospel-centered preaching, those types of things today. And sometimes what I hear is people have the wrong idea that that is just a, a, a novelty conversation of theologians and pastors today, or it's a it may be sometimes it even gets attached to specific movements within the church, like, oh, Christ-centered preaching, that's that reformed group over there, or that's this group over there. And we attach it to like the pet ideas of groups of Christians. And I think that that really is an injustice to the way that the Bible talks about the Christocentricity, the Christ-centeredness, the gospel-centeredness of the scriptures, because all that to say, obviously I'm making the point before I say it, <laughs> That's what the Bible teaches about itself, right? The Bible itself teaches that it is centrally about Jesus, but it teaches more than that. It doesn't just say it's a book about Jesus stuff in general. The Bible, mm. again, like I would say, is gospel-centered. It's gospel things about Christ specifically. And one thing that I say a lot is I talk about the gospel acts of Jesus, and like, if you look at the life of Christ in the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I just have to point out that they tell us a lot of things that Jesus did. They show him healing people. They show him saying things. They show him eating. They show him sleeping. But, but of all the actions you see of Christ in the Gospels, there are some that are preeminent to all of them. And that is those Gospel acts of Jesus that fulfill the Scripture in this way that we're talking about, how he came and he lived as a perfect man. He died the death we deserved. He rose again from the dead on our behalf, which we could never do. 
and he ascended on high as the king in, in, in all authority. And we await his return to restore all things, right? So those are the gospel acts of Jesus that are more important than any of the other acts of Jesus, even though those have their important place. And so anyway, not to go on and on as, as I usually do, <laughs> but, but yes, the Bible itself, and let's let's look at a couple of these spots, Nick, that it yeah. teaches us that it, it the whole thing is about Jesus, but even more centrally that it's about this mission work, this gospel action work of Jesus that's restorative of, of the universe. What do you think? Yeah, and I would just jump in there real quick and say this. What, what that essentially means is that it is possible to read the Bible and read the words of the Bible and yet miss the point of what those words are pointing to. And that gets us maybe into one of our first texts that we're going to use to make this point. Yeah, I feel like you got that from the Bible. <laughs> I did, yeah. And that would be in John chapter 39, where Jesus is speaking to the John Pharisees. chapter 5, you mean? Yeah, I'm sorry. What did I say? John, yeah. John there are chapter 39 th chapters in John. <laughs> maybe not in your Bible. Yeah. Oh, you got um, that new Bible, huh? I got the new one, yeah. So yeah, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And so, of course, Jesus speaking about what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and telling them that the Hebrew scriptures bear witness about him. And in other words, you can read them and miss the point if you fail to realize that they are talking about him. Yeah, but that's the, that's such an important one, all right? And because I, I think it touches on things that we said. Number one, it clearly shows you could teach verse by verse through the whole of the Bible. You could read through the whole of the Bible. You can study deeply because these guys he's talking to search the scriptures. They searched them, mm -hmm. right? But they failed to arrive at seeing and embracing the the thing underneath all the other things scripture said that it was really about and it was really about this person of Jesus and the implications of his coming and what he was doing and that we read about in the four gospels specifically right yeah. <clears throat> and so yeah you can search the bible and miss its message if you're not doing it in a Christ-centered way and that is a life or death issue yes if you don't zoom out and see the story that all the stories together tell, it's possible to still miss the point. I mean, let's just think about the Decalogue for a second, the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> Exodus 21 through 17, I think. You could just teach that, right? Let's, we're in Exodus 20. Hey, this is the law of God. Do this and live. <laughs> you yeah. taught the text. You said what it said. What you failed to do was, like you said, draw yourself out and ask what the gospel has to do with this passage. And what you start to do there, what is, where's Jesus here? And you, you start to move forward and into the panorama of scripture, and which obviously we don't have time to do that. But we know that scripture's commentary on itself would say, that law doesn't show you how good you could be. It shows you how good you'll never be. And that law shows you the perfection of Christ that he came and lived out on our behalf, which we could never do. And that is the very thing he fulfilled to enable us to be reconciled to God by faith so that we can receive an alien righteousness credited to us by faith alone. We're, we're Romans and Galatians and all over the place right now, right? But the point is, you could say, hey, look, I went to Exodus 20 and I taught what it says. Mm -hmm. And what it says would be very unchristian mm -hmm. if you don't bring the fuller testimony of scripture and the link with Jesus and his mission and his gospel acts back into it. That, are you following with me? Yeah. And let me circle back to a question that we received at the CGN International Conference. Someone said, how do you know that when you're teaching in a Christ-centered way, that you're not just shoehorning Jesus into passages where mm. he doesn't actually belong? <laughs> and I think that's that's one of the common criticisms of this Christ-centered hermeneutic or Christ-centered mm -hmm. preaching method right? Which is to say that you're looking for Jesus behind every bush, even if he's not there, right? Yeah. Like maybe somebody might say, well, how do you know? Maybe the 10 commandments are just moral instructions. How do mm -hmm. you know that that's about Jesus? Now, mm -hmm. I think we know the answer to that, but I, I'm just saying that that is a common question. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, and, I, and I think this is where it's important. We don't have time to go deeply into this stuff, but what does it mean to teach Christ from every portion of scripture? 
because I don't think you or I are saying that, especially in like an allegorical way, purely, I don't think you or I are saying that every single verse in the Bible explicitly is saying something directly about Jesus right now. Mm-hmm. But every verse does have a connecting point to this bigger story, central story of God that is centered in Christ, right? So yeah. some texts, like I think of Genesis 22, there's what happened. You could just teach this happened between Abraham and Isaac, right? And you, you taught what it says, <laughs> but there's, there's, a, there's a picture of the gospel in this text that even the New Testament draws upon of a father giving his son and the son giving himself and all of these different types of things. So you could say that Genesis 22 shows a a picture of what actually happens in the gospel and the actions of Christ and his relationship to his father and giving himself on the cross. So I think there's texts like that, but there are some texts, like I look at some of the Old Testament and it's just like utter sin and debauchery, like mm-hmm. rape and murder and all this stuff is going on. And I'm like, is Jesus in that pool? No, I don't think Jesus is explicitly or in shadow form or in typology being presented in a text like that. However, it does connect to the gospel. It shows us the depravity of humanity. It shows us why we needed Jesus to come and do the things that he did for us in the gospel. And that story, it does, if you take it in context of the 66 books, it does demonstrate the need for these gospel themes. And it often puts another stone in the path as we're walking toward the ultimate coming of the Messiah where he comes and did these things. So I think I get and at a certain level where that question comes from, but I think it comes from a misunderstanding of what it means to teach every passage in a Christ-centered way. Yeah, we can, <laughs> let's list some of the passages. I think the really yeah. big one is Luke 24. But before we go there, I want to point out another passage that that I, I was reading recently and I, I thought it really stuck out to me. And that is yeah. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. So Paul's writing to Timothy. His protege, and he says, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, and I'll check this out, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So we know that Timothy's mother and grandmother were Jewish. They introduced him to the sacred Jewish writings, the Hebrew scriptures. But notice what Paul says. He says, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I think that's that's really important to understand that that is what a proper reading of the Old Testament will do. And so like you're saying, it isn't always like a direct type of Jesus, but it might be like the book of Judges, it shows you that this is the problem with humanity, that what we need is a king. And when we're left to our own devices, crazy stuff takes place. Yeah, yeah. I I agree with you, man, obviously. So it's like that shows you the need of a savior. It also shows you the inadequacy of even the best kinds of human rulers to bring this peace on earth that we would long for. And all of those are gospel themes, like dealing with humanity's sin, establishing a true kingdom of righteousness in the earth. You, you re, you're you not supposed to read judges and be like, so be like them and don't be like them. You're supposed to read that and go, is there any hope? And then right. yes, because the whole story of the Bible brings us that hope. And here it is. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah, I think another couple of this random texts that are on this, let's do a text-a-thon to just encourage people, mm-hmm. especially if you've struggled with this idea about the whole Bible being Christ-centered, or maybe if you're a Calvary person listening to this and you're like, hey, I like teaching verse by verse of the whole Bible. Again, we are all into that. Do it. It's awesome. It's amazing. But maybe it was it's unique for you to hear us say, that's not the same thing necessarily as teaching the whole counsel of God. And then this idea of the whole of the scriptures being Christ-centered. We just want to give you some verses to look at. One I just thought of, it's just, it's kind of a, it's a, it's an indirect way of saying what we're saying, but the opening verses of Matthew chapter one, okay, there it retraces 14 generations from, from Adam to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, if you go back and you look at the characters in, in this tracing, this genealogical chain, you travel through so much Old Testament scripture, 
And it is literally saying that that was laying the foundation of this road to Christ through the Old Testament in character form. That's another interesting way of seeing that the whole of the Old Testament, especially the most, quote, important characters, are centrally about bringing this person of Christ to us to do the gospel things he did while on earth and subsequent to that, right? Yeah, I, I teach Genesis at a Bible college here in Colorado. And one of the, my favorite chapters to teach on is Genesis chapter five. That's the passage where it just scans over human history and like this guy yeah. lived, he had a kid, he died. This guy lived, he had a kid, he died. <laughs> and you're like, it why covers, are we talking about this? <laughs> yeah. Well, it covers 1600 years of human history yeah. in one chapter, which yeah. is almost the same amount of history that's covered in the rest of the Old Testament. Right. Which is incredible because, in other words, what that tells us is that the Bible is not just a book about history. Yep. The Bible is laser focused on telling one story. Yes. And that is the story of why there was a need for redemption, right? So creation, fall, yep. redemption, and restoration. That's the story that the Bible tells. And it's laser focused on following this line, this redemptive line that leads us to the Savior, the one whom God promised. So yeah. I, I think that's a really important point, that the Bible isn't just telling us Jewish history just for the sake of it, right? It's yeah, telling not, us a specific line of history. Yeah, and it's not even just talking about who happened to be there. Yeah. Like, it's selecting people who are important people and important histories on the path to telling that one big story, like you're saying, yeah. Yeah, I think, okay, so another passage I like is Romans 1, actually. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What did he promise? He's talking Old Testament. He said this is the gospel of God that was promised through the prophets and the scriptures. And he gets even deeper. He says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ. That's who those prophets and scriptures were talking about who was born of the seed of David. Again, we're getting deep history, historical figures now, according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So again, he's saying two things, that the prophets and the scriptures, they were all talking about this gospel. Well, Christ, right? Son of David and so on. But even more than that, specifically talking about the gospel that has to do with Christ, the son of David, right? Yeah, here I've got a similar one. That's First a good one. Peter. Come on, that's a good one. <laughs> that was a good one. All right. Check this out though. First Peter 1 yeah. verse 10, where Peter says to the Christians around the Roman Empire that he's writing to, concerning this salvation, salvation through Jesus, yeah. the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And they said when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Ooh, so that's, that's what nice. the prophets wrote about. That's really nice. I'll give you my favorite one, and then we can talk about maybe the most famous one, right? Okay. So here's my favorite one. Acts <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 35. Here's what I love about it. Philip the Evangelist, he's led away from this revival in Samaria, led by the Holy Spirit out into a desolate place in the desert next to a road. And as he's standing by this road, led by the Holy Spirit, this Ethiopian official comes rolling yeah. by. Philip approaches the man's chariot. He hears that he's reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And then it says that Philip gets up with him and the man says, I don't understand what I'm reading. Can you help me understand it? And it says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is really interesting because this is a kind of like a little exercise we did with our church when I taught through Acts a few years ago. We, we used to encourage people like text in during service and then we would respond to questions. And so I said, okay, here's, here's what I believe. I believe that if Philip had heard the guy reading from literally any, any verse in the entire Bible, yeah. Guess what he would have done? He would have began with that very scripture and told him the, the good news about Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> because think about this. He happened to be reading from Isaiah 53, which is a pretty easy one, right? To say, okay, this is clearly talking about the sufferings of Jesus. And yet, what if he hadn't been reading Isaiah 53? What if he'd been reading Isaiah 35, which is about a guy named Sennacherib doing some stuff <laughs> and in like Assyria, right? 
would he have said, oh man, let me ride with you for a, a few minutes until you get to chapter 53, because that's when it really gets good. Or, yeah. or would he have just said, well, here's the deal. There was this guy named Sennacherib. He did some stuff. All right, have a great day, right? Like, would he have just like sent him on his way without telling him the good news about Jesus? Obviously, the, the answer is no. He's called Philip the Evangelist. He would have taken any verse in the Bible and yeah. taken that from there. And so that's what I believe. I believe that you can start with any verse in the entire Bible and there will be a road from that verse. Sometimes in order to get to it, you have to connect to a main road, if you will. But there is a road which will lead you to what Charles Spurgeon called the metropolis of the scriptures, which is Christ. And mm -hmm. so what we did is we invited people from our church to like text in and, and kind of like challenge. How mm -hmm. can you get to, and we got the craziest verses, right? We got like, you shall not permit a witch to live. Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you take the road from that verse yeah. that leads to Jesus? And I got to tell you, it's actually not that hard. Right, because you understand that there. Well, because you understand that there are. are but you'll have to listen to that episode to get the answer, right? That's right. Yeah. But anyway, that's one of my favorite my favorite exercises to do with people is to say, "Is there really a road from every scripture, and how does that work?" And that kind of teaches people to think in terms of these kind of meta themes of the Bible. Yeah. And how those meta themes prepare us for and set the stage for both the need for a savior and the savior that God is going to provide and does. Yeah. And, and again, the, the spirit of all this, you, for those of you who are listening, is biblical literacy. Like we, we want to be biblically literate. We want you to be biblically literate. That involves understanding the whole counsel of God. And at the heart of the whole counsel of God is understanding that the Bible is a book about Jesus. And even more essentially, it's a book about the gospel of Jesus Christ that's being worked out in the world by the Spirit of God, through the people of God and the scriptures of God today. And so that's why we're belaboring this and looking at these verses that, that tell us to read the Bible this way. That's it, right? We want to be mm -hmm. biblical. And the Bible is telling us, don't just read the Bible, read it with a thing in mind. Read it with a question in mind. Read it with a view to Jesus, to finding him, to understanding him and the gospel in every place that you happen to be. You agree with that, Nick? Yeah. But Kellen, here's a softball question for you. Why should we do that? Like, why isn't it enough to just say, hey, the Ten Commandments say that you shouldn't murder and you shouldn't lie and that that should just be enough for you. Like, if you love God, just do the stuff. And here's what God says you should do. So again, the rest of the Bible would tell us that just reading that text that you're speaking of at face value where it is, you will not be left with the true and greater purpose behind the law if you just stop right there at the Ten Commandments. So if you go into books like Romans, for instance, Paul goes to great lengths to explain how the law was never really given as a mechanism by which we might be right before God and establish our righteousness before God. It does determine God-defined righteousness in many ways, but not as a means for us to attain it. And, and much of what was going on with the giving of the law was to, through the testimony of the Hebrew experience and their scriptures and the law, to tell the whole world that you need somebody else to do this for you, somebody else to be righteous for you. And so, as you move down the road, Paul would tell us that then Christ comes. Only he lives out the law perfectly from the inside out because it's not just our external actions, it's our conformity of the heart to the principles and the spirit of the law too. And that's what he's saying. No human being who has ever lived has ever fulfilled the law perfectly from every moment of life. And therefore we are all transgressors with guilt on our, our heads, right? So Jesus comes, he lives the perfect life that we could never live on our behalf, dies the death that we deserve to die on our behalf, and he rises again and he makes this offer to us that if we understand that and embrace the need for that, we get this righteousness of God credited to us forever. And then Paul says at that point, you now have a different relationship to the law. So in the first three chapters, he tells us the law came because of the knowledge of sin. It, but it, it doesn't come to liberate. It comes to leave everyone condemned and guilty before God. So that every, it says that every mouth would be stopped. That's a nice way of, of saying that the law comes to all of humanity and says, shut your mouth. You have no argument to make for being accepted by a holy and just God. But good news, God made an argument for you. 
He died for your sins in Jesus Christ and rose again from the dead so that you can be reconciled by grace through faith alone. So the law shuts you up, according to, to Paul, and broader biblical testimony of the entire scriptures, which are about Christ. And when you embrace that, Paul says a new thing happens. You become dead to that law now. So even now as Christians, I don't look to the Ten Commandments to figure out how God wants me to live. I seek to pour into my life by the Holy Spirit and the love of God I have because of the gospel. And, and if that's the life you're living, the principles of the, the, the commandments, Lord, lived out through you. But last thing I'm going to say about this is Paul says, if that's where you're at, he says, I'm actually dead to the law now. It has fulfilled its purpose in my life. So that was a really long <laughs> kind of biblical theology of the Ten Commandments in one sense. But that is why you can't just look at those portions of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, as isolated and independent and sufficient on their own, because they're just part of one bigger story. And if you don't read the full context of the full story, it could be life-threatening consequences. That you yeah. okay? <laughs> yeah, that was great. No, it's really good. And I mean, I guess if I was just going to put it succinctly, I would say yeah, it's do because that, the, the transforming power is not in our own moral good deeds or lack of doing bad things. The transforming power is in the work of Jesus on our behalf. Now that's power, as you said, to justify us, but it's also the motivation for, for our living a life of, of service and submission to Jesus. It's also the power for sanctification in our lives. And so, yeah, that's what I would say is that it's possible to preach those things and lay burdens on people and actually miss the point of what the scripture is altogether getting at. Yeah. And so let's get back to the, the last text that we're going to talk about, obviously the most famous one, and that is found in Luke chapter 24, where after his resurrection, on that first Easter Sunday, the evening of it, he Jesus appears to his disciples. He teaches them the best Bible study in the history of Bible studies. <laughs> Right. And he says yeah. to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then I'll jump down to verse 44. It says, mm -hmm. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me. In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Yeah. So what that tells us is that the, the right way to understand the scriptures is to understand that everything in the scriptures must be fulfilled in Jesus because it is written about Jesus. So in yeah. other words, the reason why this matters is not because this is a cool fad or something like that, but because this is the way that Jesus gave us to understand the scriptures. That's right. Yeah, there's a right way to understand the Bible, and there are wrong ways. And yeah. this is the way that we are supposed to read the Bible is in a Christ-centered way. And it, like many have pointed out that even the terminology there when it says written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is an ancient shorthand version of saying the entirety of the Old Testament. Like, we're not yeah. making that up. That is basically them saying, you know, the whole Bible? <laughs> yeah. That was, there's, these things are written of me. And, and I want to press a little bit further, even down some other verses, because again, it's not just, it isn't just even general things about the Christ, about Christ. It is this gospel mission of Christ. So verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary. If it was written, it's necessary. That's the, the status of importance Jesus has on what is written in the Bible. And this is an argument against oral tradition, but we're not going to get into that right now. <laughs> but like what is written, grafe, it is, there are things written in Holy Scripture. And if they're written, Jesus made sure they came to pass in his life because he wanted us to have confidence in the integrity of the Scriptures. But what he's saying is written here that the, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I mean, you think of places like Isaiah 53, but, it, but what he's saying is not just key passages like that. He's saying the entirety of the Old Testament has at its core 
Yes, about it's a book about me, but it's a book about these central things in my mission of redemption that I've accomplished on the earth that my church is now preaching through their mouths and through their lives. So yeah, I would say that Jesus himself has a gospel-centered, Christ-centered understanding of the entire Old Testament and the New Testament is an outgrowth of interpretation and prophetic language that is rooted in that very same message with continuity between the old and the new. So, Kellen, let me ask you, do you think this is in any way a departure from what Calvary Chapel has traditionally done? I think no, but I think the way that that has to be kind of almost answered Calvary Chapel leader to Calvary Chapel leader. You can preach the this what we're talking about as the the whole counsel of God, that central message as we were defining it. You could preach that, in my opinion, in one hour. You can just explain the whole counsel. You could, I think you could do that in five minutes, in my opinion. Because again, I to me, the whole counsel of God is this core message of the entirety of the message of the Bible. And that's why it's life or death, blood or not. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, you could do that. But then again, could you teach the whole Bible? Is that a value? Yes, let's do that. So we're not saying to depart from that at all. We're just saying as you do that, have a Christ-centered understanding of the goal of your teaching. And because you could teach the entire Bible and not teach Christ in it. And therefore, you you miss the central message, the central person of the Bible, and you will miss the central message of the gospel of the scriptures as well. So I think it's always been the goal to teach the whole Bible and to preach Jesus in Calvary Chapel. But I think person to person, we've done a better job or not, and, and much of it comes down to, did we understand this? That you're not just explaining history, you're preaching a Jesus-centered text everywhere you are in the Bible, and even more than that, a Jesus's gospel-centered text everywhere in the Bible. So yeah, I don't think either of us are saying this is a departure, but Calvary pastors of the past, present, and future, we need to have not just going through all the verses as the metric we use to determine our faithfulness. We need to have going through this book and centering people on Christ and centering people on his gospel as the metric that we use. How well we're doing that, I think it comes down to each person has to determine for themselves what they're doing. Yeah, so what are some of the things CGN is doing to encourage this? Well, for one thing, we're producing content that encourages this. So Mm -hmm. things like this podcast, this is why we have chosen biblical literacy and gospel-centered life and ministry as a core value for CGN, because we want these principles. We see them as core enough to the mission of the church, exemplified by Christ and passed on by Christ and acted out by Christ through the church. We see them as central enough to make those core values that we want to shape everything that we do. So yeah, we're writing them as core values. We're producing content that talks through them and teaches these things such as this. And then we're just seeking to model it as leaders as best we can in the things that we do, the ways that we live, the way that we interact and all of that type of thing. But I will say as well, I think the Expositors Collective is a key mechanism for how we want to encourage this sort of understanding of the scriptures. So maybe you want to talk briefly about the Expositors Collective real quick, Nick. Yeah, the Expositors Collective, it's a group of pastors, leaders, and others who are encouraged to help raise up the next generation of Christ-centered preachers. We started it in 2018 as a group, and it's it's grown over time. We've done several events. I'm thinking we've probably done 12 to 15 two-day training seminars. Our next one coming up is in October in Boise, Idaho, and we'd love for people to check that out. You can find more about it at expositorscollective.com. But we go into several aspects of teaching and preaching. This is certainly a key aspect of it, the kind of Christ-centered hermeneutic and understanding this, making sure that we teach the Bible accurately by reflecting how the Bible is a book about Jesus. But yeah, we've got great resources on there. And recently, the Expositors Collective came into official relationship (laughs) with CGN. We've always kind of been related to CGN and definitely supported by CGN, but we just recently became officially an initiative of CGN, which I'm excited for. It's a great thing. If you're listening, you got to go. (laughs) Maybe, hey, before we jump out, man, and we can, maybe you'll edit this out later, but it does occur to me, maybe we could give like a, just a, a closing shorthand description of how the Bible, the whole Bible 
traces the thread of the gospel. Like how would we, as somebody said, well, how is the whole Bible about the gospel? In what way? I think there's a lot of ways you could answer that. <clears throat> I'm going to give a crack uh, for myself. And then if you want to add yours, that'd be cool. Yeah. So like when I think about the whole narrative of scripture, there's a ton of things going on. But it, but again, this idea that it really traces this central thing about Jesus, right? So I would start all the way back in Genesis, it starts with this thing of created perfection. God makes a universe that is perfect in every way. It's devoid of sin and death and all of that stuff. And in, as you move forward in scripture, the next thing it shows you is you might think of it like problems in paradise, where there's the fall in Genesis 3 and corruption. And men and women, our first human parents, they sin. When that happens, it's like they open the doorway to the universe and in comes sin and death. It already existed outside of our universe, the fall of Satan and everything. But now the door is open and it comes into our universe and it affects our bodies, it affects our lifetime, it affects our relationships to each other, it affects our relationship to God, and there's death and entropy that's going on. So there's created perfection, there's this fall that occurs, the curse comes from that as well. And into that moment, there's this promise of redemption. And a lot of people talk about Genesis 3.15, talks about the seed of the woman as the first gospel, right? The Proto-Evangelion. And I, in my opinion, that's what it is, because in that moment where God could have just wiped everybody out, he comes in and he says, there's going to be a seed of the woman who comes, who crushes the serpent. And then I, I would see even a, a symbol of the authority and power that has been given to the serpent in the fall and all of that stuff, right? So to me, Genesis 3.15 then becomes the key verse for understanding what happens in the rest of the Bible. So you've got perfect creation, a fall, and then this promised redemption. And what happens there is you, as you trace forward, God starts to show you his plan for bringing that seed of the woman into the universe. And the plan for that is this messianic nation. So God goes to work. And I think the rest of the Old Testament is the telling of the story, how God builds a messianic nation through which he would bring the seed of the woman to do what we think of as the gospel acts of Christ, right? So then as you move forward, God chooses a man, Abraham. From the man, he makes a family. From the family, he makes a people group. From the people group, he makes a nation. He gives them laws. He gives them leadership, prophets, priests, and kings, and he gives them land and the promised land. And then two, as the, that life of the nation is unfolding, and there's so many things that God gives to the nation that are symbols and pictures of the Christ who has to come, their sacrificial systems and all of these types of things. There's prophets who are speaking the scriptures and recording the scriptures that have things like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and all of these things that are portraits of what it's going to look like, their billboards, what it will look like when the seed of the woman finally comes. And then you get all the way to the Gospels, and it tells us the story of what it looked like when the Messiah did finally come, when the seed of the woman did show up and how he lived a life we could never live and he died the death we deserve and he rose again from the dead. And then he has this commissioning act for this, the church at the end. And then you have, you pour into the book of Acts and you get the beginnings of the church age as, in my view, Jesus is kind of dividing and conquering. He's been one man fulfilling the gospel at that point in, in time. When he ascends, he pours out the Holy Spirit, and he starts operating through this global movement of gospel-unified, spirit-unified people that we call the church. And then out of the life of what he's doing in the church, continuing this mission to reconcile all things to himself— you get the life of the church that the New Testament epistles all fly out of, and they're talking about the implications and applications of what Jesus did as the seed of the woman when he came. And that brings you all the way forward to the book of Revelation, which talks about the summation of all things when Christ comes back and ultimate fulfillment of all of that stuff. So there's plenty of stuff in there that I'm not touching on, we're brushing over, but I'm just saying that's one angle that you could look at the whole Bible and ask, how does it really form together to stay centered on this message of redemption and the renewal of all things in heaven and earth in the person and work of Christ centered in his gospel acts? I just want to give an example for people that maybe this is a new idea to just say, look, there's, there's one five-minute view of how you could think about the whole Bible and all of the big stories centering down into one story itself. So what do you think about that, Nick? Anything you want to add? I would only <laughs> add this, that, I mean, there's a name for what you're doing and it's called biblical theology. There are a few right. other terms that have been used for it, but I think that's the one that's probably correct to use, at least in yeah, I agree. modern yeah. nomenclature, right? So biblical theology, which means that we take the whole Bible as a cohesive unit 
And that has always been a core thing in Calvary Chapel, right? That we believe that these 66 books are inspired by God and that they were, that's that's actually quite a miracle in themselves that these yeah. books written over the course of 1700 years by 40 different people on three different continents and three different languages come together and form one cohesive narrative, which tell one story. And that that's miraculous. And yeah, we call that biblical theology. And that's definitely been a core of, of Calvary Chapel forever. There are different ways of approaching theology, like systematic, et cetera. But unless we take all these aspects together, we're missing pieces, right? So we yeah. do our systematic theology, but we have to do it by, it's the famous analogy, right? That you can miss the forest for the trees. Yeah. And so we want to not miss the forest. That's kind of the point. And so, yeah, I think that was a good summary. And one resource I'd recommend if you're listening to this, like how can I go deeper on this in an accessible book would be okay. According to Plan by Graham Goldsworthy. And it is just a simple primer on seeing this big story among all the little stories of the Bible. So, all right. I think we talked long enough. <laughs> Great. All right. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CGN Mission and Methods podcast. We'd love to hear feedback from you on these episodes. You can email us at cgn at calvarychapel.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast, one of the best ways you can do that is by giving us a rating and review on your podcast app. Written reviews are particularly helpful in helping boost this content so other people can find it and benefit from it. Until next time, God bless you.